All right, let's go to our pamphlet. We'll get through as much of it as we possibly can. Uh, what I want to do is you'll notice that I've said there are 14 communicable attributes of God. I listed 13 because one of them is his omnipotence, his power, and I'm not sure how he shares that. Uh, and I didn't know how I could make an application, so I pulled that off the table. The word communicable, what that means is that these attributes of God are who God is and how he has shared these attributes with us. In fact, you'll see the summary statement there in blue. The summary statement is the communicable attributes of God are, here's what they are, God's characteristics or perfections as revealed by Scripture that God shares with humans. Okay, so let's think about how we do and what we do with this. You and I are made in God's image. Every person here, all of us, every single, every person you see is made in God's image. If that's the case, made in God's image, there's something about us that is like God. If we're made in His image. Right? I mean, even, even Jesus when he's asked about paying taxes and he said, whose face is on the coin? Caesar's face. Rendering Caesar's Caesar's. It's the image, right? What, you have the image of God. And so there's something about us that is like God. There are some things that God has that we can never have, right? But there are some things that God has shared with us. So what I want to do tonight is just go through several of these. I don't expect to get through the whole thing. We might, but I don't, I don't want to rush through. You can read. Everybody here can read. So let's just go through some of them. Before we get there, I want to call your attention to Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses has asked to see God's glory. To, to see who God is. Up front, brother, right here. To see God's glory. And in chapter 34... Uh, the Lord says, of course, you, you, there's no way you can see. I'm going to pass. I'll show you what even says the hind parts, right? But in chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, as God is displaying his glory to Moses, listen to what God has said about himself. He lists some of the attributes of who he is. It's right there in verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him. And proclaimed, so this is what God has proclaimed about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, okay, there's one attribute, and gracious, it's the second attribute, slow to anger, third attribute, abounding in steadfast love, fourth, faithful, he's faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, there's another attribute. And transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. There's justice. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So even in the Old Testament, when we're reading some about who God is, you see these attributes that he has shared with us that we then, if we're going to, as Christians, part of our obligation is to grow in Christ likeness. So some of these communicable attributes of God are those things that are going to help us grow in Christ likeness. Let's talk about some of the attributes. One is omniscience. Omniscience. God is all knowing. 
You see several of the passages there. <clears throat> Psalm 139 is really a great passage when you talk about what God knows about us. You can read it. We'll read just a little bit of it. God knows everything. <clears throat> Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, you know it all together. I'll just stop there. I mean, you get the sense of what does God know? We say that God knows everything. Well, indeed, he does know everything. He knows it in such a way and knows us in such a way that we can never actually know ourselves. He knows you better than you know you. He knows the people that you love better than you know the people. He knows, him, he knows himself better than you and I can ever know God. God knows everything. In fact, that's the second point up under uh, omniscience. God, God fully knows himself. You see the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. God knows these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now listen to the Spirit and the deep things. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So he knows himself. In fact, let's think about what else does God know? I'll just, I'm gonna, I don't expand all of the points like this. I just got fascinated with the knowledge of God today doing this study. And I got down in a little bit of a rabbit hole. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to come out. But I just want to point out some things. So God knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. He knows all of the past. He knows all of the present. And he knows all of the future. He knows all of the past at the same time that he actually also knows all of the present. And God knows all of the present at the same time. So in other words, God knows everything that is happening here right now at 645 at Hickory Grove. He knows all of this along with all that is happening around the world. In a church that might be meeting in Korea. He, he knows all of the present, he knows all of the past of every human being that's ever had a past. And I got thinking about this and I just mentally went down a rabbit hole just a little bit. God fully knows the past, Psalm 90, uh, verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it is past, or a watch in the night. He knows the present, Hebrews 4, 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He knows the future. Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will give to no other. Nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. I declare them before they spring forth. I tell you of them. One other thing about, well, not one other thing. I had a bunch of other things. I did get carried away. God knows uh, the present. He knows the future. He knows all. He knows all actual things. This is what I got fascinated with. God knows all actual things, and he knows all possible things. Things that didn't happen, but could have. And if they had happened, he knew how they would turn out. I, 
So let me just read something. Uh, did, I, did I put Matthew 11 there? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Down there, G. I've jumped all the way to G. <clears throat> he knows all possible things. So this is Jesus in Matthew 11. He's giving the woes to cities. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, in other words, if this had happened in those two cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So he knows every potential reality. So I started thinking about that. So the things that I, the Lord guides us into, he knows the mistakes that we will make and what's going to happen with those mistakes. So that any flashpoint, any crash out on Harris Boulevard, any red light that stops us from going into an intersection, he knows all of the potential realities that could or could not happen. He knows all possible things. Okay, so that's, that's God's attribute. We obviously don't know everything. Unless you're a 24-year-old seminary student, then you know everything. We, we, don't, uh, we obviously don't know everything, right? But how does this apply to us? So God has knowledge. He's given to us a couple of ways I think we can take this attribute and, and walk in obedience and becoming like Christ. One is, I think we have an obligation to know God. Because God is omniscient and knows all things. He's given us the ability to know. You can have someone introduce themselves to you and tell you their name. And after the sixth or seventh time, you'll get it. You're able to know people. You're able to see faces and recognize, I know that I've seen that lady somewhere before. So you have the ability to, to remember things. How then do we use that to become like Christ? We have an obligation for those of us that have, prof that have professed the name of Jesus and claim to follow Christ. You now have an obligation to get to know God. That's part of you growing in the faith. There's no room at the table for people that call themselves Christians and have no desire to know God. Doesn't mean you have to be brilliant. Doesn't mean you have to know everything there is to know about God. You certainly never will. It does mean you have an obligation to get to know who is this God that you claim to worship. Do you know about his holiness? Do you know about his hatred for sin? Do you know the depths of his love? Do you know his word? Have you, have you tried to, to put into your heart portions of the Bible? Remember this, if the Bible is God-breathed, if it is God-speaking, we have an obligation to actually learn it. That's why we spend some time on doctrine, to get to know God. I would flip that over and say, since we are beings and made in God's image and we have this attribute, He's given us the ability to know, we not only need to know God, we, we actually need to know ourselves. We need to know, have you ever met someone that has no self-awareness? If you've had a child, at some point you know that that child doesn't have self-awareness. It's normally around 19 or so. And you always hope they come out of that, right? You keep praying, and you get to 25, not out of it yet. 
Uh, and, and it's irritating someone that is not aware of their own shortcomings, that think they're good at something, but actually is not good at it. We have an obligation to get to know ourselves, our, our tendencies. What is the sin that I struggle with? What, what is that that's going to tempt me more than other things? To know where the weak points are? To know uh, my own personality quirks that might be offensive or even sinful? Because we've been given the gift of knowledge, one of the ways we grow in Christ-likeness is knowing God and knowing ourselves. And I would, just, I would say, by way of opinion, I think we have an obligation to, to know something of creation, some field of creation. Here's what I mean. If you go to Genesis, in creation, God created us before the fall. We have been given a, a, a job, and that job was to take dominion. There's a reason that you like to organize things if you're an organized person. There's a reason that, uh, that you want the garage cleaned out and stacked up and neatened. There's a reason that you want to, I, I, right now, my, my mower has been down. I got an old wheel horse mower. It's 25 years old. The belt came off, and I don't know how to fix it. So I had to get somebody to fix, put the belt on. And my yard looks terrible. It's like somebody has abandoned my house. And it's bothering me because I have a desire to take dominion of that yard. You have, some of you, have for the desire to take dominion of the cabinets, right? The, the, re the reason we do that is that God has put that in us to, to do. And I would just say there are certain fields that you have, you ought to, be the, you ought to be, become an expert at something or someone. Become an expert uh, at a passage of the Bible, a story in the Bible, part of the Bible, um, someone in history some field of endeavor when we work and know we do so under the Lord. Okay, that's knowledge. Here's another, uh, I'll go faster with the other attributes. Here's a second one. The second one is wisdom. Paul closes out the book of Romans in chapter 16 and says to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. How is God wise? Well, I'll give you three ways. He was wise in how he created the world. Proverbs 8. 8.12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and uh, discretion. He was wise in how God designed salvation. I won't read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. That is a great description of salvation and how God has designed salvation. So he's wise in creation. He's wise in designing salvation. And God acts wise for his people. You know Romans 8.28? Everybody loves Romans 8.28. There is a reason to love 8.28 because it is good. We know this. That for those who love God, God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So, so just think about this. Just think about this. Let's say you came to Christ late in life. You became a Christian when you were 35 or 40 or 45. And if you lived 40 years without, outside of knowing Jesus, you got 40 years of some really, really terrible things behind you. Some things you probably are ashamed of, right? So you have the sin behind you. But you come to Christ and you claim Romans 8.28 on this side of the cross 
If Romans 8.28 is right, and God in His wisdom can reach back into your past and take all things. Does it mean all things from this point forward? All things means all things. He can use those things in your past for good. You say, how does God use sinful things for good? Remember the doctrine of providence? He's control of all things, right? Remember how God used sinful men, crucified the Lord Jesus? They were in sin, but it was accomplishing the perfect will of God. Only God can do that. This is wisdom and the wisdom of the wisdom of God. So wise in creating the world, wise in designing salvation, and God acts wisely for his people. His wisdom oftentimes is beyond our ability to understand it, even at the at the moment. Something I've been learning uh, preaching through Genesis. I didn't, I didn't intend to spend so much time in Joseph's life. But in Joseph's life, his life became, for me, a display of God's providence and working through difficult, terrible things. In fact, I'll stay in it again uh, this Sunday. I'm preaching Genesis chapter 40, and I, I really don't know where the sermon's going to go, honestly. I've been, I worked on it all day uh, Monday. No, Tuesday, worked on all day Monday, all day Tuesday morning. And I cannot tell you where this is going to land yet. I keep thinking, what, what am I going to tell these people on Sunday? Because there's, there's something going on in prison with the, with the, with the uh, cupbearer and the baker. And the baker's going to be killed and the cupbearer goes back. And chapter 40 opens up and he's, Joseph is still for, he's forgotten. But it's another display. I think we'll have something to say about God's providence. Hope you're not tired of hearing about that, but that's what this is about. It's God's providence. It's wisdom. The Lord's wisdom. Let me give you something else to consider. Number three. A third attribute is, um, is truthfulness. And what I mean by that, I've given you a, an A, B, and a C there. By that, I mean that God cannot lie you see that in Romans 3, verses 3 and 4. Verse 4 of that passage says, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. Not only that, God cannot lie. The Scripture, this takes us to the Bible. Remember, we put the foundation in the first couple of weeks of this book. Um, we believe that the Scripture is breathed out by God. It is God speaking. And if that's the case, then the Scripture is completely true. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And then I think a good application is uh, letter C there. And letter C says that we, we imitate God when we tell the truth. So this is one of those ways if you're created in the image of God, you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you've given your life to Christ, you call yourself a Christian and you are a Christian, then one of the ways you grow in Christ's likeness is actually telling the truth. In fact, I, I'll read that passage, Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
We imitate God when we tell the truth. Now, most of us sitting here would think you think you are an honest person. And you probably are an honest person for the most part. You don't tell outright lies. Most of us have learned, however, the ability to manipulate the truth a little bit. Right? We, we know how to exaggerate. I mean, that's what Baptists are known for. Exaggerating. Uh, no, exaggerating the attendance, exaggerating the number of people there. We always round up if someone's asking. If someone wants to, wants to know how much you weigh. So you're asked how much you weigh. Depending on who I'm talking to, when I was playing football in college, I wanted the number high. I wanted to be 6'3 and 240. And I was one, in one program, I was 6'3 and 240. No other programs, but at one time, I was, it was in print that I was 6'3. I'd grown three inches and gained 30 pounds uh, from last week. <laughs> what we oftentimes can do is get around and still feel okay. And I would just say that this is one of those areas that would be worth examining in your own life. If, if you're in Christian fellowship with people that are other Christians, there is, a, there is a burden on us to actually speak the truth. Of course, we do it in love, but to be able to speak truthfully to someone. Because speaking truthfully is then imitating God. If He's truthful, then it's incumbent on us to be able to be truthful with the people that we love and call brothers and sisters in Christ. So that means we don't exaggerate, we don't stretch the truth, we don't imply or infer. Infer? Yeah, infer. Is that right? That's what I do, right? I mean, not, not what I do, I mean, what I mean is the speaker is inferring. Yeah, okay, I had it. It's been a while since I've been in English class. Truthfulness. Let's go to faithfulness. Here's the fourth one. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. I'll go quickly through faithfulness. Uh, the text says, Paul wrote to Timothy, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he, can't not, he cannot deny himself. That means you're true to your word in, in spite of difficulties. You're absolutely true to your word. Now here's a good one, the attribute of God, and that is love. Now you could have picked a whole number of things of, of what it means to to love like God loves. Let's just go through some of the ones that we know are familiar. So I've listed just three passages. Uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is a great, beautiful verse. We claim and believe that God, it, the salvation comes out of God's love and that he loved his creation so much, this is what he's done. He sent Jesus to redeem. And any person that believes is then redeemed. John 3.16 is a beautiful verse that we claim. John 17 is another description of, of God's love. Jesus is speaking in John 17. And he's praying. It is a great prayer. As all of his prayers are great. Let me just read it to you. Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. 
that has really strong implications. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, this is salvation, God giving them to Jesus, you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So that little phrase right there, Jesus is saying to God the Father, he's speaking of the Trinity and the perfect love that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have for one another. Our idea of fellowship and reason for being in fellowship with one another comes from our understanding of how the Trinity works out of perfect love for one another. Okay, O righteous Father, verse 25. Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If you go and read John 17, and lots of Puritans did, uh, they did studies on John 17. It's a beautiful prayer. But there you have a picture of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and how the Trinity comes to play in church and the fellowship. And the reason that you and I are called to have fellowship with one another, the reason that you are to love me and I am to love you, is not just because we're in some sort of, uh, you're not in some sort of weird cult. It's because we have a triune God that is perfect in love. And because we are made in the image of God and redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we then are called to love people regardless. And so that love is not just that God loved the world. That is John 3.16. We, we thank God for that verse. But John 17 it shows the obligation we then have. So the truth is, if a church can get a hold of John 17, if a church can get a hold of that, if enough people at a church, I have um, several friends in the ministry. I've, I've had two, two churches in recent days, large churches similar to ours, uh, one in Winston-Salem, yeah, one in, one in Winston-Salem, and another in Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi. Broadmoor Church, Broadmoor Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi, outside of Jackson, and then Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem. Two great churches, very similar to our, very similar to our church. I know their pastors. I was roommates with one of the one of the guys uh, in Texas. Uh, I lived in a dorm for a while at my first seminary, and I had to move out of the dorm. Uh, I could stay in school, but the administration thought it was best to move out. So I moved out of the dorm. I got in a little trouble in seminary, by the way, your pastor did. <laughs> Just a misunderstanding. I had played football in college, and you get to seminary, and people don't act like they did in an athletic dorm. And so you can stay in school, you just can't live on campus. Okay. So I was roommates with one guy at, uh, in Texas, and then another guy I went to school with in New Orleans. I went to two different seminaries to get my master's degree. And both of these guys, they're both my age. We're both at this point in our ministry. Um, it sort of scared me a little bit. Within two weeks, both guys stepped down from the pulpit, not because of any kind of adultery, not because of anything weird with money or women or anything like that. It just had burn them up. And what had burned them up was trying to provide leadership with, a, with, with people that either didn't love the, the pastor or that didn't love one another. There was just a lack of affection. I don't know what those guys are going to do for a living. And I think 
I mean, this is what God has given us, right? He's, he loved the world so much that he gave Jesus. And then Jesus praying in John 17 about the Father's love to the Son and then how that is the model of how we then love each other in fellowship. And then that love becomes the greatest witnessing tool. That, that genuine community becomes the greatest witnessing tool. One of the greatest draws for the church is not great right doctrine. We need that, and I, I want to we keep working toward that. I'm very thankful for that. The greatest draw becomes when people feel loved. Not and, and, and I don't mean just you approve of everything they do, it means you, in spite of whatever sins they might have, you actually love them. You see it in um in Uptown Charlotte, you see it in young adults. You guys familiar with CrossFit? Yeah, CrossFit. If you know somebody that uh, is a CrossFitter, you know they're a CrossFitter. Because I mean, they tell you all about it, right? I, can't, I couldn't go to CrossFit. Uh, I think you have to take your shirt off and get a tattoo. And I don't know, Connie wouldn't like it, so I don't go to CrossFit. <laughs> But one of the things that has made CrossFit so successful is the actual community. People are a part of something. They, they, they are brought in. It's a good model for us in the, and a reminder that one of the things that draws and holds us together is not just that we love God. It's just that love of God. We imitate the, the love that Jesus has for the Father and the Father has for Jesus in the Spirit. We imitate that by loving each other. In fact, there's a third one um, I've listed, 1 John chapter 4. John says, we, we love, and the reason we love is because he loved us. We love, why? Because he loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. We need to take that right there and just, just send it to all of us. Isn't that a great reminder? What a straightforward talk it is. How can you have hatred for anyone? Let's say you don't hate anybody at the church, but let's say you, you disagree terribly with another professed believer. I see this on Facebook a lot. Facebook's a terrible place. Hey Amen. It's a good night. It's a terrible... I, and I sometimes see people in my own church. Especially if you happen to be from different backgrounds or, or, or different color. And you would say something never, never overtly racist, but it, it doesn't feel like this. It doesn't feel like we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen. So if, you're, if you can't love people that you actually can see, he cannot love God who he's not seen. That is a frightening verse. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So claiming the name of Jesus, claiming the, being a follower of Christ, it demands, by virtue of definition from 1 John 4, that you actually love other believers, brothers and sisters in Jesus. I just don't have a choice in the matter, right? Love. One of his attributes that he shared with us that we can grow in.
I'll go point out a couple more. Uh, number six. God is good. <laughs> Used to you hardly could get through saying that God is good all the time, all the time God is good. It is very true. Uh, that thing is true. I don't know why I get tired of hearing it, though. I need some new cliches, I guess. God is good all the time, all the time God is good. He alone is good. Mark 10, verse 17 and 18. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before this, talking about Jesus, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. I would press on this a little further and, and drop down to Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. He alone is good and he is good in all that he does. So this is where it gets difficult. It's easy to say God is good all the time. All the time God is good. Okay, we believe God is good. We also must trust that he is good in everything he does. So Joseph in prison falsely accused God is good in doing that. Because Psalm 105 says that God was the one that sent him there. So we're going to be careful what we claim about God being good. He's good not just in the times that are enjoyable. He's good, all, he's good working in all of it. In all of the difficulty. That he's good. He is good in all that he does. And he is the source of all good things. In fact, I'll read that passage to you. Uh, James Chapter 1, verse 17. Man, I put a lot of Bible in here. Did I put too much? Of course, I mean, how could you ever say too much Bible, right? <laughs> I set you all up there a little bit, right? So who's going to say, yeah, it's too much Bible. I'm tired of reading the Bible so much. He's the source of all good things. James 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, so th that's an attribute of God. He's completely good. What does that then mean for me? What is the application? If I am an image bearer and he shared that attribute with me, his goodness with me, I then, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I then am called upon to seek for ways to do good. Part of my obligation is to actually do good, to do good things for people. And I would press that a little further and actually desire good things for other people. To, to be upset when bad things happen to people. You, you want something good to happen to people. Not just the people you love, the people that you don't yet love. That's the hard part. There's a certain satisfaction in seeing someone that has wronged you getting what they deserve. I've even said, I've felt it at least, he had it coming. Truth is, we all got it coming. Without Christ, we got all, it's coming. Okay, God is good. Let me give you another uh, attribute. And that is grace. I would put grace and mercy together in my description. But let's just talk about a couple of them. We, we can put those together. Um, grace. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What a great two verses that tell the history of mankind, for all have sinned. So that's all of us. We fall short of the glory of God. There's not one person in this room better than another person. It's all of us in it together. We're all children of wrath, like Ephesians says. And all of us then are justified because God has freely given it. That's what grace is. It's a gift. Verse 24. All of us then have received this gift of redemption through Jesus. So grace then is an important thing because, and I, this, is, um, this has helped me as I've matured as a believer. So you come out of seminary, I'm pastoring the church, and there's very clear lines of black and white, right and wrong. If you do this, you're a believer. If you do that, you're not a believer. You get all this knowledge, you get very prophetic. And if you're not careful, you forget grace. And what grace does, it doesn't change the truth. You don't quit believing in right and wrong. You start understanding the depth of your own depravity and what it took to save you. That's one of the great, if you can come to view yourself as a sinner saved by grace, you see other people as recipients of grace. And what's helped me is, is you start to extend grace. Right? You give, you, it teaches us not to be harsh. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? That it's God's, it's, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance? I mean, that's mercy. That's the, I mean, grace and mercy are they're one coin, different sides, they're just one coin. Mercy, listen to what... Um, Listen to what Romans 9 says. Romans 9 is the most feared chapter in the entire Bible. I'm going to get to it one day. I'm going to I think I'm going to preach through Romans next year. I haven't laid it out yet. I think I'm going to do it. I probably am just going to start Romans 1, just start preaching, and not try to do it in a year or two, just preach through it. And if I feel like everybody's getting bored with it, we'll go preach another series for a little bit, and we'll come back. But Romans chapter 9 uh, shouldn't be feared because it talks about the way God gives mercy. And I'll just jump in the middle in verse 14 through 18. What shall we say then? These are rhetorical questions. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, now Paul's going to quote the Old Testament. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, because that would be earned. It depends on God, who has mercy. But the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The, beauty, the beautiful thing about mercy is that it is all of God and none of us. There's nothing we do to get it. He gives it. And that's the point of this passage, saying that it is up to God to do that. Right? What kind of mercy does he have? Well, I'll point out a couple of ways. He has mercy like a father. Isn't it a beautiful passage in Psalm 103? Psalm 103, verse 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so, this is showing us what God is like, 
So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame and He remembers that we are dust. He knows your tendency. He knows that you fly off the handle. He knows that you struggle with this sin. And yet He continues like a father. All of you that are fathers in here, if you have children, even as rebellious as they are, that fatherly instinct, it, it drives you to keep showing mercy. And if you're a Christian father, you do that not just because you're a father, you do it because you're a Christian and you've received God's mercy. Because God is merciful, we are merciful. You see that in Luke chapter 6? Merciful like a father, and because he's merciful, we are merciful. Okay, let's go, let's keep going a little bit. Here's the ninth one. Uh, patience. Patience, I've already quoted that from Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 4, that is God's patience, His kindness that lead us to repentance. And because God is patient, because God is patient, we are to be patient. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with them all. Now, let's go back and look at these people. Admonish the idle. You know what idle people are? They're lazy. They're not doing anything. They're skipping class. They're not going to work. So I'm supposed to admonish them. I look forward to admonishing the idle. They need to be admonished. Okay, it's easier for the faint-hearted, those that have just been run over by life and burned out, you encourage them. Part of a help the weak. Who doesn't want to help the weak? It's the Christian impulse to help the weak. We're called to do that. But notice he tacks on Paul right on the end of it. Here's the word patience. With all of them, there's always going to be a certain group of people that, that get on your nerves individually, that bother you. Amen. I've been looking for an amen. Was that Betty back there? Was it saying that? Yeah. Uh, there's always going to be a group of people, and whatever that group of people, you're not off the hook. Paul said, Here, here's what you're doing. You're patient with all of them. God's patient with us. Part of this communicable attribute of patience He's given to us so that we might then extend. Let's keep moving. I think I can get this done. I got four minutes. Holiness of God would deserve an entire evening. His holiness is not like our holiness. Our holiness is not complete until we are glorified in heaven. Our holiness uh, growing by degrees. Isaiah 6 is where Isaiah saw the holiness of God. You remember the whole picture? And uh, he, he realizes his sin. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I, my eyes have seen the Lord. And he goes through this transformation. It's God's holiness that brings about the change. Not only that, we are to grow. The New Testament teaches from 1 Peter, we are to grow in holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Holiness is, is God's glory lived out on display in the way we treat one another. Your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We are to grow in holiness. That means 
We should be getting a better handle on some of the besetting sins. You should not have the same level of anger that you had when you first got saved. You should not have the same struggle with a foul mouth that you had when you first became a Christian. Whatever the besetting, you, just, you pick the sin. Right? You should, there should be some growth. I'm not saying you're perfect. You are growing, and one day when you die and go to heaven, you will then be glorified. Holiness. Uh, let me jump. Let me jump ahead. Uh, the jealousy of God is not like our jealousy. One of his attributes, he's jealous for his own holiness and honor and his name. When we think about jealousy, we've tarnished it with our own emotions. And you think about a, uh, an enraged uh, husband or wife jealous for their spouse. or So it's all the weird things about jealousy. It's unfortunate to use that word because we've made it something that it's not. In the Bible, when, when God speaks about being jealous for his people, he's jealous in a holy way that means it has to do with his honor and the honor of his people and the honor of his name. That's, that's jealousy. Let me go down to wrath. The wrath of God. The wrath of God. Human sinfulness provokes divine wrath. Exodus 32, what a terrible passage. I'll read a part of it. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. God's people have always been stiff-necked. Stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. I will consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses will intervene, but he intervenes because of the wrath of God. So you have God's wrath. It's man's sinfulness provokes God's wrath. I'll give you A, B, and C. You know these passages. A, B, and C. Christ came to rescue children of wrath. Ephesians, 10, uh, Ephesians 2 says that we are children of wrath by nature. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which you loved us, even when we were dead in sin, saved us in Christ. Right. So Christ came to rescue the children of wrath. B, that rescue is exclusive to his disciples. Even John 3.16, God loved the world so that whoever believes, but the key thing is they've got to believe. So the rescue only happens to disciples. And then see, we, we imitate the wrath of God through righteous indignation. Very seldom have any of us actually had righteous indignation. Typically, our indignation is tinged in some way with unrighteousness because we're sinful people. But there are times. And it doesn't come out with a yelling, screaming kind of anger. It's, a, it's an indignation that you, you're mad at something that is unjust or unholy or ungodly. I'll give you, um, I think, just... I have a 13th. The 13th is justice. Justice. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Okay, so God, here's justice. He, re he rewards obedience and he punishes disobedience. You see the two passages there from Romans and 2 Thessalonians. 
So I just wrote down a couple of things with 14. And I'll close with these things. We are created, each of us, in God's image to reflect Him by mirroring His attributes. That which is good about God, we are to reflect. So I think that shows up in some ways. I've just written a few. There could be 25 of these. I just got to E and quit. Did I quit at E? Okay, yeah. Happens with character transformation. You're becoming more like Christ. It happens when your attitude is changing toward people, toward the church, toward situations, toward your future, toward yourself, a different attitude. It shows up uh, oftentimes when you develop the ability to be thankful and have a, an attitude of, gr of gratitude, that you're grateful. One of the greatest characteristics of Christianity is you are actually thankful. You're thankful because you understand that something outside of you has, has given you this. One of the greatest pictures, you have to be humble to be thankful. The fruit of the Spirit. So you can go through in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, thankfulness, self-control. Go through and look, look at the fruits of the Spirit and you ask, am I growing in these areas? And then I'll give you a fifth one. I, it shows up um, in people that are growing, and that is encouragement. The ability to naturally provide a word of encouragement to a brother or sister in Christ. We live, we live in a world that will suck the joy out of you. And it just, if you're not careful, you forget that God has put us here as image bearers to provide that kind of life. Encouragement is life for people. So God has called us to do the communicable attributes of God. Join me as we pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you for the goodness you've shown us in Christ. We ask you to give us strength to live out and to grow in those attributes you've shared with us. That you give us great patience and love that we grow in grace for other people and, and having mercy on people. Fathers, we think about your attributes. May they drive us to want to worship you, to worship you and know you more. I pray you wake us up tomorrow morning ready to spend time in your word. Then bring us back Sunday. Gather us together to lift up the name of Jesus in real worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.